Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Reed Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. To all of our listeners who complain about having a hard time telling us apart on the podcast, <laughs> your wishes have come true. I've arranged something for you. And um, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm laughing at your pain. <laughs> Okay, listeners, Jackie is sick. <laughs> this is Khalid, and that's Jackie, and she is sick. Super sick. I'm so sorry I'm laughing at you. I can't help it. Well, and I'm trying really hard not to laugh along because every time I laugh, I break into a coughing fit. Oh, no. But you guys don't have to worry because if I cough or sniffle, I will edit it out because I really hate when podcasts don't edit out body noise and like gulps and stuff. I hate that Uh because it's very easy to do for the record. It's very easy editing. So I'll do that for you. I got your back. This really sounds like easy listening radio (laughs) to me. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this was just camp germs. Uh huh. Of course, we were at IDRS recently and I was focusing very intensely on my performance and like very intensely, perhaps the most intense I've done in several years. And so um, some people have said maybe it was my body's letdown and I'm finally uh, relaxing. Or right after IDRS, I went back to teach the final two days of LSM. And I don't know if I just got some camp germs or what, but I am toe up sick, (laughs) y'all. This is no joke. And the sad thing is, is I come back and in like less than a month, I'm playing Dead Elvis and Soldier's Tale. And so I don't have time to not be practicing. And for those of you who play the bassoon, you know, Dead Elvis has all these crazy high E flats and high E's. Oh, no. 
I can play. It's just my embouchure is so weak. They're like so flat. It's not even funny. Oh no. Oh, adventures in quarter tones. It's very nice. I sound really <laughs> dead. <laughs> um, when you actually give the performance, can I post like pictures of you as dead Elvis? on the Instagram because I think you would make the cutest little tiny Elvis. Well, you know, what's funny is I've been doing some reading on it and I've found several people who've said that they did not anticipate how hot they would be in the costume, that the hair is really hot and the outfit's really hot. So they suggested practicing. So you're used to the hair. And so I'm going to be walking around my apartment in an Elvis wig. Could you please, please send me a picture of you just walking around in your jam jams and your Elvis wig? (laughs) You got it. But let's give my voice a rest. (laughs) Why don't you tell me about how you enjoyed IDRS and what you've been doing since? I have to say IDRS was incredible. It was in Tampa, hosted at the University of South Florida. And for everyone who was there, who listens to the podcast and who we had a chance to meet, thank you so much for striking up a conversation. It was so awesome to, you know, get to know everybody and put some faces to the names from social media interactions. And we, of course, did our live show and it was so funny. I was dying. I mean, the family feud was so funny. And then we did a small, like a short little interview with Pedro Diaz. And then we had him do the Ling Ling workout. And he was so funny. It just couldn't have gone any better. And I'm so proud of what we did. I mean, it was fantastic. We just got some really great feedback and we're now in brainstorming mode to propose for next year's IDRS because we're like, let's do it bigger. (laughs) So I'm super pumped. Yeah. We had a really great turnout. So thanks to everybody that came. Yeah. We had an awesome turnout. It was fantastic. Unless you're the one that got me sick. Well, thanks for coming anyway, but thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot for coming. (laughs) I'm just kidding, of course. (laughs) So since I've been back, I've been working at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp, which is in gorgeous Western Michigan in the woods and teaching the, these two sessions at the end of the summer are middle school sessions. So I get to work with uh, students aged 11 through 14 and I just adore these students. They are so great. I mean, you just take all of the students who, you know, feel like the band nerds in their school, and then you put them all together in a summer camp. It's so much fun. And I'm the schedule, as you know, Jackie, is super intense because you'll text me and then five hours later I'll text (laughs) you back (laughs) but it's been a lot of fun super intense I have a um a chamber music recital tomorrow night with some of my uh colleagues old and new so it is you know it's gonna be really fun and I am getting to a point now in my performance readiness where I feel a lot more comfortable 
being myself as a performer and understanding about myself. Like I am not the type of player who's going to give you a technically 100% perfect performance a lot of the time, but I'm getting more comfortable with being musically very expressive and stylistically outgoing and taking some musical risks and trying to be engaging and being okay with you know, maybe a wrong note will sneak in every once in a while, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad musician. And so this camp has been really good for me for that because it's just like, learn the music, learn the music, learn the music fast, 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 and then you perform it. Mm -hmm. So it's really um, that professional level of get it done and do it right. And I can be a risk-taking performer and that's, that's good. I like that. You know, that it allows me to explore my own personality on stage in a way that I hadn't allowed myself to do in years past because I've just been so obsessed with being perfect and it really hindered my musical growth. So I don't know. That's what I'm dealing with right now. Well, and that was a thought that was really on my mind a lot at IDRS because I came to realize, one, like what you're saying, nobody is perfect, but that the musicians that I admired and that the recitals that impressed me the most had very little to no relationship with perfection. Right. And um, that was just very good to reflect on what I actually found inspiring and what I wanted to emulate in the field and how a lot of times it cannot match up to our mental dialogue when we are the ones making the music. Yeah. So having healthier self-talk, I guess that's what it comes down to. And really reminding ourselves of the priorities that are really important to us and making sure that those are at the forefront of our brain when we're performing Mm -hmm. because that can flip really easily. Mm -hmm. Thousand percent. I feel like I always say a thousand percent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like I sound like a dying mole. And if I was a listener, (laughs) I would want this to stop like right now. So I say we make (laughs) this dish a little short and get to the interview, which is pre-recorded. I will sound normal after the break. And thank you for bearing with me. I hope to be back to normal for the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jackie. Have some chicken soup and some tea. Feel better. (laughs) So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. This wouldn't be a double read podcast if we didn't talk about knives and knife sharpening. 
Since day one, Gender Reed Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Gender Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a great reed knife, and now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife Maintenance Kit, Reed Knife Sharpening Book, Cutting Block, and Reed Tool Roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just Reed Knives. We are welcoming today... Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, Saxton Rose. Welcome, Saxton. Thank you. Hello. We're so glad you could join us. Could you tell us what brought you to the bassoon when you were a small child? (laughs) Well, I wasn't so small. I was, I think, 16 or 17. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, I was in high school playing the saxophone and not doing a great job of it and not too into it. And um, our orchestra director, Frank Lestina, came into the band room and asked if anyone wanted to switch and also said that you wouldn't have to do marching band. So I was like, all in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so this other guy, uh, another saxophonist, Ed O'Dwyer, and I just switched that day and he was way better than me the first few weeks. (laughs) But uh, I started to get some lessons, and yeah, I still can't imagine how my mom paid for bassoon lessons at that point. Still a mystery to me, but um, yeah, I started playing, got into it. But it seems like such a missed opportunity that your name is Sax and you're playing the, like, the Maybe branding. I just wanted to count. avoid all the you know jokes that my <laughs> classmates were throwing up. <laughs> So talk to us about how you came to get more serious about the bassoon and pursue it as your profession. Well, um, I was just incredibly lucky. I grew up in a Libertyville, Illinois, it's a suburb of Chicago, and they just had this terrific public music school program. Just one of the best in the States. It was just complete luck. And so there just was great stuff happening all around me. Um, a lot of good influences, a lot of good students and, uh, and so, you know, I switched to the bassoon. I started to listen to classical music. I was playing guitar in a rock band at that point and started listening to Shostakovich and Stravinsky. And I was like, this is way cooler. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I I went to University of Colorado Boulder uh, for my undergrad. And at that point, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to do music. I started as a BA and, you know, I was taking art classes. I thought maybe architecture. I you know, I was just really didn't know what I was going to do. But uh, I had this experience actually after my freshman year of college at the Rocky Ridge Music Center. It's a music camp in Estes Park, Colorado. And uh, I played a Brahms symphony for the first time. And I played the Beethoven piano quintet and some great chamber music experiences and just, you know, kind of fell in love. And uh, so after that, 
camp. I came back to my sophomore year at Boulder, just fired up, switched my major to bachelor music and just went full steam ahead. Tell us more about um, your journey to orchestral playing and teaching. Yoshi was a great influence at the beginning. My teacher, Yoshi Ishikawa at uh, Colorado, I had never really seen like a, what a professional music career looked like. And, um, and I thought that was a pretty cool life. Um, and so at that point, you know, like I think a lot of um, students, I thought that kind of an orchestral job was really the career path, you know, and then you might wind up being a teacher at some point. Um, so I guess I was kind of focused on that, but um, definitely wanted to teach uh, at some point in my career. Yeah, so I just, you know, went through school. I had this incredible experience in Europe um, between my first and second years of my master's degree. I got to go and did a bunch of courses and master classes um, there and then wound up coming back to study with Stefano Canuti in Italy for a couple of years um, after that. And I came back to the States. Um, my wife and I went to CCM uh, for a year uh, to start our doctorates. And um, beginning of my second year there, I won the job in the Puerto Rico Symphony. So that was, you know, that was my first real gig. And then after five years we were there, we had uh, our first child and we're kind of looking to get back to the States uh, for a number of reasons. And then I started looking for teaching jobs and this one came up. I'd love to hear a little bit about your time studying in Europe and if that um, compared or contrasted to uh, higher ed music education in the United States and if you felt that gave you a little bit unique perspective that just seems like a really unique experience that an American classical musician doesn't typically get to have. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, it changed my life completely. I really don't think I'd be a professional musician without that um, experience, not just because of the experience of being there, but you know, mainly because of Stefano's teaching. But yeah, I encourage my students to try to get over in some respect um, anywhere really, but you know, there's so much great playing and teaching going on in Europe. Um, for me, all my favorite players and recordings, you know, all, you know, I just wanted to sound like, like um, some of these players in Europe um, and the playing in America was not exactly what I wanted to, I don't know, to sound like or the style. A lot of incredible players, obviously, but uh, I just kind of gravitated towards uh, maybe that sound or style. So um, I was trying to get over there somehow. And uh, this was a long time ago. I'm going to date myself, but I had to write a letter on paper <laughs> um, <laughs> to a number of teachers over there. And um, I got some flyers back and some information about courses. And I put together this just summer, the whole summer of kind of traveling from one class, one course to the next with like Gustavo Nunez and then Sergio Cellini and Stefano Canuti. Um, and yeah, just like opened up this whole world. Uh, I saw such incredible playing and teaching. Um, and yeah, changed my life as an epiphany. Um, I came back from that summer and, you know, I just decided I had to go back and study. Um, and yeah, I think for, for, for me, it was, um, you know, kind of a preference of that style and sound. Um, but, you know, for anyone, uh, any American player, I think, I know in the oboe world, there's, you know, even kind of more diversity in 
styles and read scrapes and all that. But um, for anyone, it's just, I think, a great experience um, as a student to get over in some respect, you know, maybe just for a summer or a course or a festival or something, just to see what else is out there. I think in America, sometimes we get a little isolationist, um, which is easy to do because it's such a big country with so many different uh, orchestras and schools and teachers. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful experience um, for a young player just to kind of see what else is out there. Have you found that that European influence has manifested itself in your pedagogy? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think everyone is influenced by their teachers, you know, in, in their own teaching. Um, I find myself mimicking my, um, my past teachers for sure, but, um, it was, you know, it was, um, maybe just a bit different style of teaching. Most of the classes, most of the teaching goes on in a master class setting, like a group teaching setting. You know, that's certainly not the case with everyone, every studio, every class in Europe. But, um, at that time, you know, almost everything was just master classes. So you, you know, you're learning from the other players, you're learning from, you know, all this different rep that the other people are, are, um, are playing. You see your teacher teaching younger students, older students. Um, so that was really, that was, that had a big effect on me. And I try to do that in my teaching, try to teach in a group setting as much as possible. How does your investment in new music play in your life? Over my career, I think um, it's been some of the most rewarding activity, uh, especially when you work with a composer and come up with a really great piece, you know, that becomes kind of part of the repertoire that other people might want to play. Um, That's just incredibly fun. You know, you feel like you're part of the compositional process almost. And, um, but in my career now, I'm, I'm doing some conducting. I'm the director of the new music ensemble here at UNCSA. And um, so that's been really fun. We get to bring in composers, do residencies, work with them, have them work with our students. Um, you know, and I'm learning how to be a conductor, <laughs> which has been a fun process. I don't think anything I would want to do uh, professionally, but it's, um, but it's something that I've enjoyed. Yeah, so that's been great, just trying to kind of grow the new music community here and get these cool pieces in front of our students. Um, You know, I think we all understand that we just have to be very well-rounded at this point in the music industry and um, learning how to play all sorts of styles of music as a student is is totally necessary. You come across students or other professionals who are intimidated by new music and maybe don't know where to begin? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I was like that too. Um, there's a bassoon workshop, this new bassoon Institute that, that I do with uh, Mike Carley, Lynn Heilman, Rachel Elliott, and Peter Kolke. I've been doing it for a few years now. And um, it's like a week long master classes, workshops, recital performances, uh, stuff like that. And it's for college-aged students, um, but that's a really good place to start because everyone kind of comes in at different levels. Some people have never played a piece with any sort of extended technique or nothing. You know, sometimes I ask people at an audition or something to play a, a new piece, and they play the Wilson Osborne or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it is intimidating. I think sometimes some of the techniques are really difficult for some people. Some, you know, to, to learn how to do some of this stuff is, is not easy. And it's, you feel like maybe you're taking time away from the practice that you should be doing on excerpts or on standard rep. But, you know, for most people, I think myself, certainly it's just incredibly rewarding um, to be able to, to help in the process of a premiere is, is incredibly rewarding, but just to play these pieces um, that require you to kind of, you know, put yourself in a uncomfortable place, you know, out of your comfort zone is, is really fun. Do you remember when and how your interest in contemporary music was sparked? What was the catalyst for this interest? Yeah, Jackie, you know, I loved your Gubadulina paper. That was super, (laughs) super helpful. Uh, I just recorded that concerto and I've got a ton from that. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But I bring that up because uh, I think maybe the Gubadulina duo is the first kind of new piece with extended techniques that I heard Mm. when I was in school and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And, um, and so maybe that, and I started to try to play that and just, you know, teaching myself how to do those, you know, flutter tongue and stuff, um, was probably the start of it. And, um, yeah, I remember trying to teach myself to circular breathe and all that, um, just kind of by myself, there wasn't a lot of, resources i think at that point but um but yeah that maybe that was kind of the first piece that i thought was really sparked my interest tell us more about rush's ensemble and dark in the song you are involved in so many different projects i think in in uh the contemporary music world and i'd love to just hear more about those yeah um well rush's was uh, a project that dana jessen started um She's uh, she plays in a reed quintet called Splinter now, which is excellent. Um, but she she did a composition consortium um, commission for uh, a work from uh, from Michael Gordon, and uh, he had just written this piece uh, for six percussionists, um, and uh, and was looking to do something for bassoons in a similar way. So he. Um, Dana Jessen really organized the the commission. So I was just on that um, consortium in the beginning, um, along with the other members of this bassoon group, Dark in the Song. And um, what came out of it was this 60-minute kind of minimalist, expansive, like psychedelic bassoon piece where you're playing nonstop really for for almost an hour. Um, and it's just a, a terrific piece, very unique uh, in our repertoire, obviously. So Dana asked us, um, to be in this group that would record it and premiere it. And then eventually we, you know, toured with it. Um, and, uh, that's how that started. So the bassoon group, um, was just something that, um, again, Mike Harley and Lynn Heilman, Rachel Elliott and Peter Kolke, we just were kind of, we were in the same area at that point in the Southeast mostly. And, uh, just, you know, met at double read at the conferences and um, hit it off and all were kind of into the same thing. And we decided we should play together as much as we could. Um, so we started trying to commission pieces. Um, Mike is terrific at this. He's in the new music group alarm will sound and has a lot of great connections with young composers. Um, so we were able to commission some, some really interesting works for five bassoons, quartets and, and 
and quintets, playing those, doing residencies at schools, uh, talking about new music and new bassoon techniques. Um, and then we started this, this institute, this like workshop um, that we did at Eastman the first year. And now it's in Chestertown, Maryland. Um, it's kind of held in conjunction with the, with the music festival there. Yeah. It's great people. I've learned so much from them. We just kind of nerd out um, when we get together and swap fingerings and stuff like that. So if we have a listener who is hearing you talk about your love of contemporary music and you pique their interest, but they don't know where to start, is there a piece for bassoon that you would recommend um, kind of entry to contemporary music or rather, is there some awesome piece that you don't think gets quite enough attention in the repertoire? Um, Well, as far as just bassoon music goes, I mean, I'm a big fan of the music of Philippe Persant. Um, you know, he's got the two viola duos, two solo pieces for bassoon, and then a, a piece for choir and bassoon, and then a small concerto. And that that might be a great place to start. It's it's tonal, um, and he uses extended technique in a really natural way, seamless in the music, not just kind of for crazy effects. You mentioned the connections that you have and the connections that your colleagues have in using those connections to uh, commission music and start new projects. And I wonder what you can tell us about the importance of making connections. What are some of the important things and maybe some of the pitfalls that you've seen in your experience? Um, Well, I think one place to start is to realize that most people are interested in talking to you or are interested in working with you or at least finding out about your project, your idea or something. Uh, It's easy to be intimidated by famous players or composers or directors. Um, But in most cases I found people are nice and they, they want to talk to you. So, um, you know, maybe take a risk and go up to someone after a concert and, and talk to them. Um, it helps to be, have a, have an idea, have a project. Um, and so if you've got something that you'd like to do, if there's an arrangement or a commissioning project or, um, or something, you know, it obviously helps to, to have a good idea, um, to talk to someone about, but yeah, I would, I would kind of take the risk and send out that email or go up to someone and, and start a conversation. I guess maybe a pitfall would just be kind of the expectation that, someone's going to want to work with you or be into your project. And if they're not, then, you know, then I guess you have to be okay with that. Another one of your collaborations is the Zephyros Wins Woodwind Quintet. And I would love to hear about your work with them. Yeah, that's, um, that quintet is probably, I don't know, the most enjoyable thing I'm I'm doing. I, I just love to play with that group. Um, they've been around, this group has been around for 25 years, almost. Um, there are no original members obviously, but, uh, it's just a group that's kind of existed, um, based in New York. And I got into the group, I guess about six or seven years ago now. Um, and everyone's just really good and, uh, it's a great vibe. So it's a huge challenge. Um, man, it's really hard to make a wooden quintet sound good as you mm-hmm. guys know, mm-hmm. And uh, it can sound like a wind ensemble sectional very quickly. Um, 
So yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, after I play with them, I'm always feeling like I can, you know, I'm, I'm in the best shape and really playing well. Um, and we do a lot of new hard music. Uh, so it's a lot of practicing for that, um, which is great. You know, I don't know if you guys feel the same way I am, but um, at this point in my career, I need to set goals that, you know, <laughs> have something to work on. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's easy to, to, uh, to get lazy, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific group. We just do about, everyone has a job for the most part. Um, you know, Jen, our flute players, the flute professor at Frost in Miami and Marianne is at Brooklyn college. Zohar, the horn players, um, he plays shows and he's um, in New York. Uh, Fatma Daglar is the oboist. She's based in Baltimore and is a big time freelancer there. So everyone's busy. We play about three times together a year um, on these little mini tours. Um, but it's a great thing. It's a really, really been a terrific challenge and a positive thing for me recently. I'm going to ask you an impossible question, but what makes that like a group like that so magical? You know, what, what do you think are the qualities or the efforts on behalf of the members that can create that kind of fulfilling experience? Hmm. Um, well, it, it, maybe it has a lot to do with everyone's attitude. Um, when you play in a group like that with no director, we're there because we want to be, and we're playing the music that we want to play, um, you know, in the orchestra, you know, sometimes it's um, not a great experience because it's not the music you want to play or the director you don't like, or, you know, you haven't chosen everyone in the ensemble. And so in this group, we are all there because we want to be and um, playing the music that we want to play, playing the venues and the concerts that we want to play. And so everyone's just kind of all in and, it's a really good vibe. I don't know. Certainly another part of it is that everyone's good. <laughs> you know, <everyone laughs> plays really well. And, you know, if I'm not super prepared and on my game, then, you know, it's going to be tough. So we all kind of show up ready to go. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely fun. And some of that music is just, you know, you don't play it often. We're just played the Harbison quintet a bunch of times this year. And, I I wasn't so into it at the beginning, um, but after playing it a bunch and really learning it with the group, it's just falling in love with it. It's such a huge, but complicated, but, but like incredible piece. So when Galit and I are preparing to interview someone, we go through their uh, biography and we prioritize things that we want to talk to them about. And as we were preparing for your interview, we noted that, you have these chamber collaborations that you're very involved in, and you're also very active as a soloist. You are principal bassoon in the Winston-Salem Symphony. You are a pedagogue and you're an academic. <laughs> and that is a lot. And you're, <laughs> uh, to state the obvious, and uh, you're, you excel in all of these areas. And so I would first like to ask, how you go about honing each of those areas in a way that doesn't neglect any other um, advice on becoming this kind of fully faceted musician. Uh, I would love to figure that out someday. Maybe I will. <laughs> you <laughs> you let us know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you, know. you have, 
you've done interviews with all these great players. I'm sure you probably know more than I do. But, um, <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. Balancing like um, all these different projects, but also life in general and being a good husband and father and, you know, having time to yourself and all that. I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure we all struggle with this. Sometimes you feel like you've got it figured out and then you look at your calendar and you're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know that concert was next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think keeping, I mean, this is, you know, another reason that um, I, I wanted a teaching job um, after playing the orchestra was that uh, I just need a lot of variety. And for me, that's, what's the most interesting thing about being a musician, um, you know, is playing in a lot of different groups, a lot of different situations, a lot of different places and traveling and meeting different people. Um, so for me, that's what keeps things, you know, interesting. Uh, I think if I were just playing in an orchestra or just teaching or just, you know, trying to make it as a soloist or something, um, that I wouldn't be happy or fulfilled, but yeah, I don't know how to balance it yet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you have, you know, because you're, we only have so much time in the day and your practicing probably has to be incredibly efficient. How do you warm up in the most efficient way and how do you structure your practice session so that you can squeeze every last bit out of that time? Yeah. Yeah. That's the challenge. Um, well, I get the most for me, uh, if I practice, in the evening, I don't accomplish nearly as much as, as if I practice in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I try to practice in the morning as much as I can because I know that time is better spent. Um, and then in warming up, I um, I get out the bassoon and I walk like in circles around my office, <laughs> just warming up, going through scales and this kind of articulation, articulation exercise I do. Um, but if I walk around a bit and, you know, stop in front of the mirror, check my fingers out, look out the window, um, I, I don't get as bored. <laughs> so <laughs> if I were just to sit down, you know, in front of the stand and try to go through a whole warm up thing, I, I think I'd quit real quickly and start playing the piece, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, for me, slow practice is really helpful and so if I practice for 15 minutes uh, really thoughtfully and slowly, um, I get much more out of it than if I were to just try to put the metronome on and start cranking it up. Um, I'd realize that about myself. And then uh, I, have to, I have to make a lot of reads because <laughs> I like new reads. And it also is kind of a motivator for me, playing on a good read all the time, um, having new reads coming in. If I've just got a bunch of old reads that I don't like sitting around, I'm much less likely to, to practice. That's another thing for me. That's a great point. So as you think back over the history of your career, are there any memories of a past performance, solo, orchestral, whatever, um, that stand out as glory moments that you look back on and think, oh yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, actually this, the, maybe it was the first concert I played with Zephyros might've been at Skidmore college, it's ankle hall there. Um, that one, I was really, really, I don't know. It was, it was 
I know that we played really well um, and kind of played in the moment. You know, sometimes you're just kind of hanging on for dear life and doing your best. Um, and sometimes you feel like you can, I don't know, be outside of the group a little bit um, and be a lot more engaged. In that performance, I remember we were all just looking at each other, all making music, you know, responding to something that someone did. There's a lot of kind of, you know, extemporaneous stuff happening. Um, I, I remember that being particularly fun. Um, any of those performances where you do feel like in the moment you can really be there and, and respond to people's, you know, or like be watching the conductor the whole time and doing whatever they want to do or be responding to your colleagues in the section or something. And that's always fun. Mm -hmm. Are there any perhaps hilarious or embarrassing memories that you'd like to share with us from being on the stage? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'd like to share. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have, absolutely the most embarrassing situation of my life that makes me cringe just thinking about it now um which i'll tell you because why not you can edit it out later right <laughs> yes <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> um it, with puerto rico symphony we're playing this gala concert um and we were playing um just a bunch of opera arias. Una Fertigua Lagrima was one of them. And I won't name this conductor, but uh, we started playing, the harp was playing, and he looked up and put four fingers up, like it was going to be in four, and started conducting in four, and it just didn't go well. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know where to be, and we played a couple measures and had to start over. It was terrible. Oh no. <laughs> I know. The big gala concert with video cameras everywhere and oh everyone's dressed up to the nines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to go home and put covers over my head. <laughs> but it happens and and uh I do think that those kind of failures are good for us. <laughs> I, I think it's like cautionary tale so that next time I know what to do to prepare to hopefully not have that happen. It keeps us humble. Right. right. <laughs> well, speaking of keeping our cool in the heat of performance, how do you deal with performance anxiety and quieting the inner voice, especially in high pressure or high stakes performance situations? That's a good segue. You guys are good at this. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> that was Galit who said that. Oh. Just kidding. It was Jackie. <laughs> nice try. Well, I think firstly, it's really helpful for me to realize that everyone struggles with this, you know, and so if I'm feeling particularly nervous for something, um, you know, I'm certainly not alone. Uh, something we all struggle with at some point, I, I'm sure. For me, I I do like to have a performance day routine. Um, I'm sure you've heard a lot of these, but um, I I warm up, play a little bit in the morning, eat a big lunch, uh, take a nap, and then exercise um, maybe around three or four or something in the afternoon um, before I go to the concert. The exercising thing is absolutely huge for me. In general, you know, it helps with mental health, I think. Um, so much, but on a performance day, I, I don't know, chemically it must 
be doing something that I don't understand, but it gets the nerves out. Uh, maybe get some of the, just relaxes you. Um, so that's a big thing for me. Uh, I was in a master class with Leonard Sherrows, great bassoonist, um, many, many years ago. And someone asked him that question and he said, he, he, was, he looked totally mystified. Like he'd never been nervous before in his life. <laughs> and he said, well, you just, you just prepare. You just prepare completely so that you can't make a mistake. Um, which, you know, certainly we, we can do all the preparing we can, but we still might get nervous. One thing for me is um, just kind of looking at past success, like a history of success as an indicator for future success. So like I'll, we're playing right of spring in the fall with the Winston-Salem symphony. And I, you know, I'm sure I'll get nervous about it, but um, I do think about the fact before a concert like that, that, you know, I've played it several times and it's gone well. I've played it in the practice room like 1 billion times. And, you know, if you kind of look at it statistically, like predicting success, looking at the history of it, if you look at the data, like it's very unlikely that something will go wrong because I've been able to play it right so many times. For me, that's kind of comforting for some reason, um, you know, just before the concert thinking, well, you know, I've played it a lot really well and I probably should go well. <laughs> right. So you have a very competitive studio, a very high achieving studio at UNCSA. What factors do you consider when you're listening to auditions and deciding which students to accept? I think there's a certainly a level of technical proficiency that has to be there. But um, honestly, I, I like to see a student that's trying to play musically. That's trying to be expressive. When you're 18 years old, um, you know, I didn't start, I'd only been playing maybe a year and a half, two years before I went to college. And, you know, there's not much time, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whereas violinists and pianists are, you know, playing when they're three years old. Um, so I'm just looking for someone trying to be expressive and trying to make music. Um, I think we can help them and teach them and give them the tools to be able to, to be more proficient technically, but that type of like inherent musical ability is, is, is hard to teach. So that's a big, big thing for me. Um, also, um, I'd love to get to know the students as much as I possibly can, um, talk to them, spend a lot of time, um, you know, see what they're like, um, and get a sense of their personality, whether this person is, is, um, going to be teachable, going to be enthusiastic and, um, I also like to see students with other interests, um, students that, um, listen to a lot of different types of music that, um, you know, are into other things. Um, I think that's a great indicator of someone who's going to be kind of musically inquisitive. They have to be able to put together the bassoon also. <laughs> that's really <laughs> I assume it's harder than it looks. Yeah. <laughs> it actually is, to be fair. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have kind of a fun hypothetical in which the music director of the Winston-Salem Symphony comes to you and says, Saxton, we've got the, the next season almost entirely set, but we have one concert and we're just drawing a blank. And you get to program a symphony orchestra 
concert evening, start to finish, what goes on your dream program? Hmm. Um, yeah, I just programmed the, uh, two concerts for next season of our new music ensemble. And there's so much good music being written by young composers out there now. Um, I would want to fill it, I think with that stuff. Um, and certainly have some diversity represented in the program too, which is doesn't seem to be a priority in American symphony orchestra programming. Um, but yeah, I, hmm. uh, let's see. Well, I can just look at some of the pieces that we're doing next year. Um, there's a composer, Zosha Di Castri, who I love, um, and Missy Mazzoli, and Sky Macklay, Charles Peck, Sarah Kirkland Schneider, Viet Cong. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to think about a specific program, but I think that would be my directive. Awesome. What is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I think, as I said before about the auditioning students, that kind of a real broad, diverse set of interests is important. Um, It's not that all we do is sit in the practice room and, you know, play marriage or Figaro. So it's, you know, as you guys know very well, um, doing this podcast, um, we have to know how to do a lot of things well. Maybe it's recording, maybe it's doing video or podcasts or being an engineer or um, being an administrator, um, knowing how to write a good email or <laughs> grant proposal. Um, so maybe just a lot of influences, um, courses in other uh, areas in writing, especially, um, and then kind of looking at your interests. If you are interested in history or theory or, um, or administration or something, pursuing those two at the same time. Um, yeah, that's what I think what I would, what I would say. And then, you know, looking beyond just kind of a, a career in, in, in the orchestral world. Um, so that maybe that's part of your career, but that you're, um, also playing a lot of chamber music and doing arranging or looking at, Um, yeah, all sorts of different kind of areas in the musical field. Saxton, this has been such an awesome chat. To close, we'd love to hear about some things on the horizon for you that you're excited about that are coming up. Well, I'm going to Prague next week. Uh, There's a little festival there called Amaropa. I did last year. Um, Joanna Joanna Pennington, you know her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, She's going to be there. We're going to play the Villalobos duo um some other stuff that'll be fun and then um that nika muli concerto i'll do in the fall um that was a piece that mike really spearheaded mike harley he um got in touch with him and somehow nika wanted to write a bassoon concerto it's incredible um but that was part of that commission and so we'll play that here at uncsa in the fall i'm looking forward to that Well, Saxton, thank you so much. This has been such a great chance to talk to you and, you know, you sharing your experiences and insights with us. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's such an honor. I appreciate it.
That was a fantastic interview. Thank you for joining us. Our next episode features Margaret Marco, professor of oboe at the University of Kansas. As always, you can find us on all of the social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And to listen to the podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It's time to end this nerd parade. Go drink Airborne and get lots of vitamin C. (laughs) 